Have you ever had someone turn up exactly where you don't expect them? Maybe they came to your house and you didn't know they were coming. Maybe they came at a time you weren't expecting. They maybe got in your personal space a little bit, got a little bit close. They might have annoyed you with their political views. They might have turned vegan on the drive over. <laughs> or maybe they were just really, really boring. We've all been there. We've all had those people around our houses that sometimes just really frustrate us, sometimes really bore us, they're really dull. And I would like to tell you a story about when I was a bit younger and a particularly boring evening that we had in the, in the Mitchell Baker household. So can you give me, a, give me a wave if you've ever been a child before? Been a child before? Everyone, great. So you'll know that when your parents have people around for dinner, there's a, like a negotiation process that comes as a child. So when you're four years old or five years old, the question becomes, how many questions can I ask this person? How many times can they play with me? Can, I, can they help me with my Lego? Can they read me a story? Can they interact with me as much as possible? When you're 14, it's completely the opposite. How little time can I interact with these people? How few questions can I ask them until that one question that I want to ask is, can I get down from the table now, please? And that's what we live for in those moments. And when I was 14, my parents told me they were having one of my dad's old friends around for dinner. Uh, change his name for the story, but we'll call him Steve today. So they told me about this guy, Steve, and I'd not heard of him before, but apparently he used to play football with my dad about 15 years before this. So I'd not seen him in a long time, not seen him for seven or eight years. And Steve rocks up at our house Monday evening. We have a weird time for a dinner party, but that's what we did. My mum had cooked her lasagna and a banoffee pie, the combo she's done every year since 1993. And it's been brilliant every year since 1993, but I would like some variety, mum, if you're listening. <laughs> so Steve turns up, and the only thing I've heard about Steve is that he's a postman. So I thought, this is interesting. I used to watch Postman Pat, quite enjoyed that as a kid. Maybe Steve might be a bit good, might be some good comedy value there, might be some funny stories about chasing dogs. Mm, maybe not. I also found out Steve supported Stoke City Football Club. So I thought, oh great, we've got a football fan in the house, that's really good. Okay, we start talking about Stoke City. And Steve was upset with the state of Stoke City Football Club because they'd just been promoted. So they'd just been promoted. So for Steve, this was not as enjoyable as when they were in the championship, the division below the Premier League, because now the op opposition was better. So he wasn't actually enjoying the games because the team was losing. So the dream of every single Stoke City football club to make to the Premier League, Steve absolutely hated it. This is boring for Steve. I thought, okay, football's not really going the way I expected it with Steve. What else does he enjoy? What's his main hobby? Steve likes stamp collecting. <laughs> so Steve was a stamp collecting postman. <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, when you're a stamp collecting postman, are you tempted just to like tear it off? When you post it through the letterbox, I don't need that anymore. I'll steal that one stamp. The queen that's good in that picture. <laughs> it was a really dull evening, as you can imagine. A stamp-collecting postman. And Steve, it was there for four hours, and I wasn't let down from the table. Me and my younger brother had to sit with him and our parents, ask him questions, try and pretend we found stamps enjoyable, try and pretend we cared about Stoke City. It was really, really dull. So Steve made his way home, and the next few nights in our family, we spent time laughing at Steve, remembering the funny moments we had with him. Well, laughing at him, really, not really with him. <laughs> and then one day, the Friday morning after the Monday evening, a letter dropped through our front, front door. And um, it was a card addressed to our family, and it was from Steve. And in this letter, Steve said to us, just want to take the time to thank you so much for inviting me into your family for giving me a place at your table, for cooking me a lovely meal, for asking me lots of questions, for really engaging with me and making me feel like part of your family. And you know when something gets you right in your chest, right in your heart, 
And I thought to myself, Steve's a 47-year-old unmarried postman. Probably doesn't get out very much. He enjoys stamp collecting, quite isolating hobbies. The value and power for Steve of being invited to our family table, having a place as a guest of honour, was far more than we can ever imagine. And that's the story that we're going to be leading into today, looking at guests of honours and what it means to do invitation well, what it means to do hospitality and welcome well. If you've got a Bible on you, would you turn to me to Luke 14? Some of you might have glowing Bibles, that's absolutely fine. If you haven't got a paper Bible, there are some at the stand in the back corner over there. But Luke 14, it'll be on the screen as well. Great. I'll read it out for us now. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Remember that phrase. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body and face. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the place of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I love this passage of scripture. I've been wrestling with this scripture for the last two or three months I prepare for this talk. And it's been so much stuff that's been speaking to me and uh, coming out to me. And um, we're going to focus on a couple of things in particular today. We're going to look in at the, um, the three kind of guests that we talk about in the, in the talk, so in the scripture. So the Pharisees, Jesus himself, and this man with this condition. And we're also going to look at how this kind of concept of guests of honor and hospitality affects us today. It's, easy, it's important to note that Jesus in this parable shares a meal with people, performs a miracle, and then delivers some teaching. Quite classic Jesus. That's his classic combo. Loves to have a meal, form a cheeky miracle, share some brilliant teaching. He loves that. And the first couple of guests we want to look at today, moving on from Jesus, starting with the Pharisees. So I mentioned the line carefully watched at the start of the first verse of that chapter. And the line carefully watched, uh, the original meaning of that in the Greek text, translates as sinister espionage. It's, it's pretty creepy, isn't it? It's pretty spooky. So just, just focus in on that for a sec. So Jesus has been invited in to eat at someone's house in order that they can perform sinister espionage on him. That's not really the kind of welcome that I want when I go to a dinner party. I don't want to think I'm under watch here. I'm being 
sinister espionaged upon, whatever the correct verb is for that. <laughs> English teachers, come chat to me. So the Pharisees are here, performing their sort of espionage on Jesus, and they've gathered all their big mates together, all the, all the top dogs and the big names of the, of the Jewish teachers. That's what the Pharisees were. They were Jewish teachers, religious leaders. They're all gathered in there together, throwing this dinner party of all their big mates. But their hospitality culture is completely warped because they're spying on this guest of honor. The guest of honor, they've, got there, they're, they're, they've brought Jesus in there to trip him up, to try and expose him, to kind of ridicule him in a weird way, totally against what the culture should be, totally against how you should do friendship, how we do invitation, how we do welcome. And then Jesus speaks to them while sat with them, sat at the table, not shouting from the outside, not angry, but sat literally across the table from them, sat in the presence of his enemies, speaking counterculturally right to their message, right to how they do dinner, right to how they do laws and restrictions about the Sabbath. He challenges what he sees and who he sees. He teaches the Pharisees about what they're teaching people about. He causes them to change their minds on their system of kind of patronage and greasing palms and hierarchy. And interestingly, he gives them hope. He turns to his host at the end of verse 14, at the end of talking about this thing about being exalted and being humbled, and says, actually, you, you could be at the resurrection of the righteous. You could be at that, that place of banqueting, that place of feast. Gives hope to the Pharisees. And Jesus tries to teach them about humility. He talks about the value of being uh, humbling yourselves so that you may be exalted. And this is something that Jesus totally valued in his own life. Uh, we read in Philippians 2, uh, verses 3 to 11, uh, Jesus is described by the author of Philippians as um, having um, the value of humility in a, even being equal to humans but taking a lower road. So I'll just read out a bit of that verse where it says, In your relations with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So as we can see... Jesus doesn't just teach this, he lived it. It's not just something that he said and sounded really clever and really intelligent and really catchy. He genuinely lived it out. And um, I think in our society today, we struggle quite a lot with humility. We struggle to know what humility really means. So I thought I'd have a little think about what humility looks like in our society and have a little research. Um, so I turned to my Spotify account. And um, one of the favorite artists on my Spotify account is, um, is a rapper called Kendrick Lamar. And um, Kendrick Lamar brought out a song earlier this year called Humble. So I thought, what can the Grammy Award-winning, multi-million pound-selling Kendrick Lamar teach us about humility? Well, Kendrick Lamar spends an entire song talking, telling people to be humble. I thought, this is on to a good start. This is on to a good start. He's telling people to be humble. He's got it. He's nailing it. Well done, Kendrick. And then you realize he's telling everyone to be humble because he's better than them. So he's exalting himself to humble others. So he's kind of preaching a reverse gospel. And sometimes this is kind of what we do. We sort of say that we're modeling humility. We say they want to humble ourselves. But quite often we're saying to people, oh, humility is really good for you, but I'm still quite important. I still have nice friends. I still do good things. I've still got a great CV. I've still got a brilliant degree. I still do all those sort of things. 
But that's completely the opposite of what we're hearing about in this scripture. We're hearing about humbling ourselves so that we may be exalting others and ourselves in how we do invitation, in how we give other people a place at the table ahead of us. And Jesus, even though he's been invited into this gathering of the Pharisees, I kind of think it's a little bit like the film Dinner for Schmucks, when Jesus comes in. So if you've not seen the film Dinner for Schmucks, basically the concept is there are these 15 business executives, or the CEOs and directors of this business, who every year, for a big dinner, and they have to invite like special guests, basically guests that they can laugh at. So they have all these guests that come along. One woman talks like a, I think she talks like an eagle, thinks she's an eagle. Another guy makes a taxidermy history of the world. And all these executives laugh at these guests, take the mick out of them. A little bit like what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus here. They've brought him in here to expose him, to ridicule him, carefully watching him. And this is where we meet our third guest. He doesn't have a name. All we know is he's got a condition. He's afflicted on his face, on his body. He enters in, nameless to the Pharisees, unimportant, and a complete means to an end in order to expose and ridicule Jesus. He's there for their entertainment. Oh, He's there to be challenging to Jesus. Do they see how he will react when, they see, when he sees this ill man? What will Jesus do? How will he interact with this man? The Pharisees are thinking. And Jesus takes him by the hand and he heals him. Picture yourself in this man's shoes. You've been invited into the gathering of all the religious leaders that you know, all the big dogs from the synagogue who preach week in, week out, tell you how to do your life, tell you how to be better at what you do. And we don't know anything about this man. We don't know if he was a servant. We don't know if he was taken off the street. The chances are in, in Jewish society, if you had that affliction, you would be out on the street. You wouldn't be welcomed into dinner. So he's been brought in intentionally to challenge Jesus. And Jesus takes him from a place of utter humility and shame to exaltation, healing, and freedom. Takes his hand and he heals him and instantly raises this man up, instantly exalts him. And that's the significance of the healing in this passage, is that again, Jesus lives out that teaching, exalting somebody, taking them from a place of humility to exaltation. In the kingdom of God, the humble will be honored and the lowly will be made high. And Jesus in this, in this story hangs out with the Pharisees, these important people, these rich, wealthy, significant people who have negative intent towards him. And then he hangs out with this faceless man, the one with negative social status. He's not just coming for the humble people, he's coming for the exalted people as well. We read in the Bible that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's not some of the lost, that is the, full stop, the lost, all of them. That's what Jesus came to do. And all people are invited to the banquet, irrespective of their social position or their status. See, you can be a Pharisee or you can be a disfigured outcast. There should be someone on the screen for us here. Back one, please. So you can be a Pharisee or a disfigured outcast. You can abstain from eating meat or you can mischievously run through fields of wheat. You can, be, you can be an immigrant or you can be an expat. You can be united or you can be city. Oh. There we go. You can be a royal king or you can be a burger king. You can be leave or remain. You can be a billionaire or nowhere near there. And you can be Black Lives Matter or KKK. You see, the mind-boggling, earth-shattering, universe-changing mystery of the gospel is that all people are invited to the banquet. No matter what they do or they think or they say, they're still invited. 
Yes, they may bring a whole lot of baggage to the table. Yes, they may bring a whole lot of sin and shame. But the fact is that Jesus invites us into the table and says, you're forgiven, you're welcome, you're loved, you're invited, and you're accepted as you are to be the guest of honor, to feast on the gifts of healing, forgiveness, freedom, and fullness that Jesus offers us. Most of us will have seen in the news in the last few uh, months the kind of events happening in Charlottesville in America where we've seen these protests taking place uh, from far-right people in the KKK and other groups against the removal of um, a statue of General Lee from the Confederate era of slavery in the US. And then we saw these counter-protests um, against the KKK and against these far-right groups. And I'd like to show you a little video connected to that, um, that time of events. And this is a video that was filmed uh, interviewing the father of the woman that was killed, uh, the, the counter-protester that was killed by um, a KKK member and this is an interview that took place with him of a local news station uh, the morning after his daughter's death. My, my daughter was a, a strong woman that had passionate opinions about the equality of everyone. And she tried to stand up for that. And with her, it wasn't lip service. It was real. You know, it was something that she wanted to share with everyone. You know, and my thoughts about all of this stuff is that people need to stop hating and they need to forgive each other, you know? And I include myself in that in forgiving the guy that did this, okay? He don't know no better. You know, I just think of the, what the Lord said on the cross, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, you know? We can't excuse what happened to that woman. We can't explain that rationally, logically. But we can choose to see people as her father sees people. Our attitudes towards evangelism, towards invitation, forgiveness, hospitality, shouldn't be predicated on people's behavior, upon their status, upon their actions, upon the language they speak and the words they use. It should be predicated on how Jesus sees them, on their position in the kingdom of God. Where even though they may be at the place of utter humility, utter shame, Utter anger against them towards society, Jesus still chooses to exalt them. He takes the high road and the high bar every single time for every single person. Over the last four weeks in our series on Luke Street, uh, we've looked at characters including taxmen, we've looked at uh, prostitutes, we've looked at housewives, uh, religious leaders, and crippled outcasts. Every single one of them is invited by Jesus. They're welcomed into his family, to his banquet table. All of them are loved, all can be forgiven. And you are invited to. Whoever you are, whatever status you feel you have or don't have, whatever your pay slip says you're worth, whatever your Facebook friend count is, how many likes you got on your latest Instagram flat lay pic, you're invited. Whatever your friends gossip about you behind your back, whatever your parents told you that you would amount to, whatever judgment others may cast upon your ambitions, upon your successes, your failures, your dreams, your parenting skills, Whatever trouble or hardship, persecution or famine, or nakedness or danger or sword, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, none of this can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't matter what the nagging insecurity and the whisper of fear in the back of your head tells you. Nothing can exclude you from the banquet. 
Nothing can exclude you from the resurrection of the righteous. And the significance of the resurrection of the righteous that Jesus mentions in, in verse 14 of our passage today is that it's not, a, it's not a metaphorical thing. It's not a hypothetical situation. It's a real event. It's a real banquet in heaven. It's a real time of celebration and joy. And Jesus speaks to the Pharisee and offers him this kind of chance of a reward. You'll get your reward at the resurrection of the righteous. And um, this is fascinating. Because the resurrection of the righteous, the significance there is that in spite of our failures, in spite of our shame, our mistakes, our successes, our achievements, um, we as a church, we as G2, are chosen to be the bride. We're chosen to be Jesus' bride in that place of resurrection. We get the speeches about us and the Prosecco glasses raised in our honor. We get to fill in the John Lewis gift list, I hope. And we get to slow dance a night away to take that, as every good bride gets to do. It's a real place of honor and celebration. It's joyful. And we're the bride. We're not achieved our position by our accomplishments or by what we do or our status. But it's about our hearts, about humbling ourselves as Jesus taught us, as Jesus lived out. We bring others to this table with us. We want them to encounter the love and freedom that's greater than anything we've tasted elsewhere. And you see, in today's world, I think we're becoming more and more fed up with like, the polished arrogance that people have. And increasingly, we're getting drawn to this authentic and passionate humility. Humility is contagious when it's authentic. It's contagious when it's passionate, when it's radical, when it means something. And when it brings other people with it to the table, there's something really powerful about that. When we share meals with people, when we share life with people, with the Steves of the world, when they get a place as our guests of honor. You see, the banquet, the resurrection of the righteous is what Jesus came for. There's a bit in the Bible in Luke 4, which we'll have on the screen here, where Jesus is first revealed in his public ministry in the synagogue. And he opens up the scroll and he says, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was Jesus' mission statement. And the fulfillment of his ministry is seen when we're told who we invite to the banquet. We're told to invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind, the blessed. There's some big echoes there with what Jesus is reading. In, in quoting the words of Isaiah 61 and showing us how we do invitation at the table, who we bring. You see, we can't earn our invite. We can't qualify for it or disqualify ourselves. We are invited and you're told to come as you are. You can come like the disfigured outcast. You can come in a place of utter humility and you'll be exalted and accepted. Or you can come like the arrogant Pharisee in a place of exhortation and honor and you'll be humbled, but you'll still be accepted. This is a kingdom of God. All are invited and all are welcome to the banquet. And today we want to have a taste of what this banquet is going to feel like. We're going to have a time of communion in a minute. And it's not just communion, we've got some grapes here, we've got some apples, we've got some nice wine, some gluten-free bread, some grape juice for the kids. And the kids are going to join us in this. We're going to share a family meal, a time of celebration and joy, looking to the goodness of God, the goodness of the inviter, the host of that meal. The taste of the kingdom of God.